Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to remind everyone that all of my books, as well as those by my friend and fellow Algonquin Park human historian, Roderick Mackay, are all available through the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores and at Amazon. On my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, on the Pics and Vids page, I've posted selections from my library of historical photographs of people and places that I talk about in these podcasts, which I hope you will find of interest. As I mentioned before, I also strongly encourage everyone to lend their financial support to the Wildlife Research Station, whose information can be found on their website, www.algonquinwrs.ca, and consider buying an Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirt, coffee cup, or other merch by clicking on the Gifts and Gears buttons on my website. If you have any ideas of topics that you think would be fun to explore or just want to share your sentiments about my podcasting efforts, please feel free to email me at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. In this third episode, I'm going to focus on one of the commercial operations, Apiango Lodge, which started in 1925 and is today Algonquin Outfitters, and then also take a look at what the one cottager who was on Lake Apiango, John Bates, and then I'll talk about some of the tragedies that have occurred on the lake. Much of the content comes from a now out-of-print 1998 book by S. Bernard Shaw called Lake Apiango, Untold Stories of Algonquin Park's Largest Lake. I'm also, for the first time, going to try to share as much as I know about the Indigenous Lake Apiango experience, and for that I'm depending upon two sources, by Chief Kirby White Duck of the Algonquins of Pickwaganagan, including a 2001 Algonquin Park TED Talk, and Chapter 2 in Mike Walton's 2009 Algonquin Park, The Human Impact. As always, I lean heavily on my colleague and friend Rory Mackay's Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, as well as his 2016 second edition of Spirits of the Little Bonisher, and of course Audrey Saunders' Algonquin Story, and a few Raven articles thrown in for good measure. Apiango Lodge now the Algonquin Outfitter Store, began its life as a single log cabin at Spruill Bay, built around 1902 by the St. Anthony Lumber Company. It was located at the railway terminus. And sometime in the early 1920s, Alexander Sandy Haggart established a small tourist business and had been using the cabin to store canoes and boats and canoe tripping gear that he would rent out. He was issued a letter of occupation in 1925. According to Ralph Bice, in his book Along the Trail in Algonquin Park, when rail service was finally really discontinued in 1926, Haggard bought a Ford car which he used to transport passengers along the railroad right of way. According to Shaw and Lake Apiango Untold Stories, with the help of local ranger George Holberg, the two fabricated two large hooks that when dragged behind a team of horses pulled out the remaining railroad ties. Then, by dragging a few of the ties along behind the horses, the two eventually made a semblance of an actual roadbed for cars. By 1929, the road was serviceable enough that visitors could use it themselves, 
although, according to Shaw, railroad spikes would occasionally surface and cause damage to visitor cars, leaving the visitors quite bent out of shape, as fixing a flat tire in the middle of nowhere was a challenge, as it still is today. In 1903, Sandy dismantled and moved to the site a bunkhouse built and used for some years by the St. Anthony Lumber Company, and the materials were used to build two additional guest cabins at his lodge. Meanwhile, the Department of Lands and Forests built a ranger cabin nearby to keep an eye on lake activities. In addition, in 1930, according to Shaw, fire rangers and park rangers built a pavilion, a kitchen, a floating dock, and an outhouse for the use of what was a growing number of tourists. On a small campground just northwest of what Haggard had started. Interestingly, anglers and canoeists used this original campground until the 1980s, when it was closed and became the outfitting store parking lot. Plans to expand the campground in the 1930s were halted when the decision was made to house the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research on that land. Check out episodes 32 and 33 for more details on the history of the Harkness Lab and of Algonquin Park Fisheries Research. In 1936, Haggard seems to have either run out of steam or government officials lost patience working with him. Either way, he sold the lodge and the outfitting business to Joseph Avery. In 1940, Haggard went on to start a six-day-a-week delivery service between Whitney and Huntsville. You'll recall from episode 20 that it was Haggard who was Gertrude Baskerville's lifeline in winter. He would pick up or drop off her food orders or whatever else she needed into a storage box she'd built on Highway 60 at the Smoke Creek Bridge. Avery, it seems, had just sold his interest in Mountain Trout House Resort on nearby Coagama Lake and was looking for a new adventure. He assumed the Department of Lands and Forests' responsibility for maintaining a boat on the lake and after some delay was eventually issued in 1937 a license of occupation to operate an outfitting store. It must have been relatively successful, as a 1938 department inventory noted that the business was composed of three cabins, one large motorboat capable of transporting six to eight passengers, six square sterned boats, and approximately 15 canoes. However, operating under a license of occupation rather than a fixed-term lease brought its own stresses, and relations with the Department of Lands and Forests were not always collaborative. The department's inability to properly maintain the telephone line was one issue. Avery's difficulty in collecting long-distance phone charges from long-departed guests was another. Also irritating was the DLF's unwillingness to let Avery occasionally use a now-abandoned J.R. Booth cabin at the foot of any bay for overnighting customers. The reason? Correspondence indicates that it was because the ranger staff had the occasional need of it. This all made for relationships that were not exactly positive. However, by the 1940s, Avery had 20 men who were hired out as guides in the summertime, and his marketing flyer suggested that Apiango Lodge was a sportsman's paradise. In 1946, he got permission to install a gas pump, but for some strange reason was not allowed to advertise that fact on his Highway 60 sign. In 1952, he was advised of the government's policy change, whereby the department was going to take over ownership of all outfitting facilities. He was advised that no further improvements on buildings would be permitted at Apiango Lodge, 
and in 1955 he was advised that his license of occupation was to be cancelled. For reasons that aren't clear in the correspondence, the termination notice was never enforced, perhaps because Avery had just died. Eventually, the license of occupation was renewed in 1958 in Avery's wife Mira's name, and his son Ken took over the business. Soon after, though, there were some compensation paid to the family and the Department of Lands and Forests took over the building ownership and its maintenance. Operations, though, were limited only to outfitting, and the overnight guest business was no longer allowed. In 1968, the old Apiango Lodge building burned down and was replaced by the present store. Its name was also changed to Apiango Outfitters to better reflect its role as a provisioner of canoes, supplies, and guides. All went well until 1977 when the department decided to put what was now called a concession out for a competitive bid. The Averys lost the concession to Sven and Eric Miglin from the Portage store. The Avery family was able to keep their Apiango water taxi service using their trademark and instantly recognizable wooden cedar strip taxi boats. Their outfitting business was moved to a location on Highway 60, just outside of Whitney, where it still operates to this day, under the leadership of Ken's sons, Michael and James. As you can likely gather, if you've been a long-time Algonquin Defining Moments listener, I have found that finding stories of the lives of human history of women who've lived and loved in Algonquin Park has been a challenge. However, as luck would have it, I stumbled upon a 2004 interview with Ken Avery's ex-wife, Juanita Lavallee Avery, parts of which I wanted to share here. Juanita was born in 1935 and grew up on the Pequaganagan First Nation at Golden Lake. One of eight children, her mother, Sarah Aird, Born in 1895, was a midwife on the reserve. In 1981, she received the Order of Canada for her work and commitment to her community. Juanita's father, Jim Lavallee, was born in 1893 in Whitney and worked for the Canadian National Railway. Around 1945, Joe Avery approached Sarah and asked if she'd come and be the cook at Apiango Lodge. Juanita, who was about 10 years old at the time, went with her. Juanita was schooled in the reserve until she was 13 and for grade 9 and 10 went to the convent of Mary Immaculate in Pembroke. She then took a two-year commercial course to be a secretary and then moved to Ottawa where she lived with her sister Joan and for three years worked as a clerk in the Department of Immigration. In 1954, she married Ken Avery and as she said, quote, I borrowed a long white dress with the flounces down the left side from Ken's sister Clover. I had on flat white shoes, a pearly necklace, and pearl earrings, and carried a bouquet of red roses. Ken wore a navy blue suit with a white flower in his lapel. They had the reception at her parents' home on the road to Ruby, Ontario, a wood-framed house with one big bedroom and three small bedrooms, and even an outhouse. Just outside were the CNR train tracks, and during the wedding dinner, the train stopped right in front of the house. It seems that Jim Lavallee had invited the train crew to stop in for a drink to celebrate, which they did, quite literally. The two went to Huntsville overnight for their honeymoon. Unfortunately, in those days, marrying a white man meant that a woman lost their indigenous status. That was the case with Anita and all of her sisters. But luckily, later, she got all of her native rights back. Otherwise, she wouldn't have been able or been allowed to live on the reserve. 
After they got married, the couple moved to Whitney to work for Ken's father at Apiango Lodge. Life managing Apiango Lodge was not easy. As Juanita shared, life at Apiango Outfitters was a whole new life, very different than the, on the reserve. All kinds of people coming in from the big city and international tourists. I met so many from around the world and learned all of their ways. But I was tied to the store, long hours. We sold groceries, gas, gifts, camping supplies, boats, motors. I did it all. And when Ken's dad died, Ken and I had to look after everything. So Mom and my sister Margie came to help for a while. In 1975, at the age of 40, Ken and Juanita separated. And for a while, Juanita kept working at Apiango Lodge. By then, she'd had four children. But on a cook's wages, it was impossible to take her children with her when she went to work as a cook in Lakefield. Unfortunately, she started drinking, which took her down a very dark path. But after success with Alcoholics Anonymous, she returned to the reserve to look after her elderly parents. Her father died in 1983 and her mother in 1991. And when Ken died, his ashes were buried in an urn on Lake Apiango in the East Arm. Juanita herself lived on the reserve until her death in 2008. She was a mother to four, grandmother to 11, and great-grandmother to three. In addition to Apiango Outfitters, the family, Avery and Sons, is also well known for their handcrafted paddles, snowshoes, sleighs, and canoes. Their hand-painted cherry or ash paddles that you can find at algonquinheritage.com are just gorgeous. As noted on their website, the art is original. Each paddle is hand-painted by John LaFord. John is a native Ojibwe First Nation artist who was raised in the wilds of northern Ontario. His distant forefather was known to be a medicine man. John's spiritual connection with Mother Earth was recognized at an early age, and his path as an artist has evolved exponentially over the past several years. In 1990, Wendy and Bill Swift took over the concession at Lake Apiango and renamed it Apiango Algonquin under the corporate umbrella of their Algonquin Outfitters Swift Canoes and Kayaks operation near Dwight. Today, Algonquin Outfitters operates 12 stores in the area, including Huntsville, Oxtongue Lake, Bracebridge, Lake of the Rivers, and Lake Apiango, to name a few. In a future episode, I'll share more about their Algonquin Park contribution. By the 1930s, cottage leasing in the park had been encouraged on a few lakes and was well supported, at least up until the 1950s. However, though the construction of Highway 60 wasn't even in the planning stages, cottage leasing on Lake Apiango was not encouraged. Some of the pressure may have come from the key lumbermen in the area, but also concerns about the size and danger of the lake, I would presume. A little later, I'll share some of the stories of the many unfortunate fatalities that have occurred over the years. With this concern in mind, Park Superintendent J.W. Miller expressed concern about the idea of issuing a lease in October 1928 to Wilbur Batchelor, who was the Superintendent of Recreation for the City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the United States. He had applied for a one-acre lease on the Sunnyside, now Camp Apiango site. Miller's preference was that a yearly renewable license of occupation be issued instead. According to Shaw on Lake Apiango Untold Stories, Bachelor reluctantly agreed in May of 1929, but did not stay long and by 1931 had terminated his license of occupation. Interestingly, though hesitant about issuing a lease to Bachelor, the department was happy to do so to a John R. Bates, 
which they did in July of 1929. John Bates was a wealthy, constant pipe-smoking, Packard automobile dealer from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, who had been coming to the park on fishing expeditions since the early 1920s. As was then a common practice, he expressed an interest in establishing a tent camp and did so on a parcel near the Camp Apiango site with the help of Lands and Forest Deputy Minister W.C. Kane. Having researched the origins of all of the park leases for my book, Treasuring Algonquin, it's important to emphasize how unusual it was for a deputy minister to intervene. Bates must have been quite the schmoozer, as a, or at least had the connections. As correspondence with the department, he was well spoken of and considered a good, straight, honest, and reliable businessman. Bates must have been both well-connected, but also perhaps somewhat of a schmoozer, as according to department correspondence, he was, quote, well-spoken of and considered a good, straight, honest, and reliable businessman, in the eyes of both Kane and Park Superintendent J.W. Miller. As Miller wrote, quote, I cannot speak too highly in regard to this party of gentlemen. They are all that could be desired as tenants in Algonquin Park. Note that correspondence shows that Bates was also representing fellow anglers that included B. McLean, John Bobby, and A. Leonardson. Now, Miller did go on to comment that, quote, this was not to be taken as a precedent for accepting or considering any further applications on this lake and has only been made possible by the fact that there are four or five parcels already surveyed on the ground. Now, in my view, this bureaucratic talk was very definitely a red herring, as any leaseholder wanting to lease an unsurveyed lot had never before been a showstopper. Only a point of curiosity, as often department staff thought that the lots that some leaseholders chose, like my parents, were totally unsuitable. As my own family's experience illustrated and my research indicated, all an applicant had to do was arrange and pay for such a survey, and there were no restrictions related to that process. So there is some eyebrow raising about this whole transaction. But what is even more curious about this whole scene was that further correspondence, according to Shaw, had Bates and friends, quote, inviting park ranger John Boyle to be Bates' party guest on a 10-day trip in the Adirondack Mountains. The invitation was in follow-up to, quote, an exceptionally good time the group had had in Algonquin Park, thanks to Ranger Boyle's courtesy and help. The group discreetly suggested that it could be framed as a business trip and would be, quote, a value to the park of having him experience the heights of the hunting season and witness how the army of hunters was handled and campsites laid out in the Adirondacks. There's no evidence that Ranger Boyle took Bates and his party up on their invitation. But who knows? A season passes, and in 1930, W.C. Kane was involved again. Bates had purchased a 24-foot mahogany motorboat with a modified 80-horsepower Packard engine that he called Vagabond. He wrote that the boat had a 32-inch draft and would therefore be difficult to get through the Narrows, which was probably true. Even today, there are boys that direct boaters to the center of the channel. According to Shaw, there were some, though, that raised eyebrows about the actual boat's draft. Kane noted in department correspondence that he believed that the boat's actual draft was only 20 inches. In addition, Bates also suggested that nearby lumbering activity 
and log booms in the spring heading to the Apiango River made life on the east arm difficult. He asked to be allowed to shift his lease to what is now referred to on the maps as Bates Island in the south arm. There were some problems with the surveys. At that time, leases were limited to one acre and waterfront width was not allowed to exceed the lot's depth. Not only was this regulation ignored, but the single two-acre lot lease was also backdated to April 1930, as by November of that year, he'd already built a cottage on the site. Bates, with his wife Belle, would visit several times a year in all seasons, staying in winter sometimes for three to four months, well into their seventies. In winter, they would leave the car in Whitney, which, according to Whitney locals, was always the latest model Packard. Locals Bob Pablinski and Andy Johnson would take them in with supplies by horse and sleigh. Later, if the Apiango Road was open, Peter Bordowitz, owner of a Whitney General store, would bring in the mail and supplies using his Jeep. In summer, Bates would drive into the Apiango store and leave his car there. He and Bell cultivated a large garden on the lease, preserved all kinds of vegetables for their winter sojourns, and even made ice cream that she would offer the Avery children, who always spent their summers at Apiango Lodge. Bates built a workshop that he was happy to let the local park rangers use to repair their equipment. He also let them use his big boat in return for keeping an eye out for the place and delivering the mail. According to Shaw, in order to keep the, in touch with the outside world, he had a shortwave radio and also a wind-driven generator that was mounted on an observation tower that powered a washing machine. For nearly 40 years, he gardened and fly-fished in local lakes in and around Lake Apiango. He even went so far as to pay for the stocking of nearby Secret Lake with speckled trout. In 1936, governmental plans changed for Apiango, as Bate was advised that his 21-year lease would not be renewed when it expired in 1951. Once again, he must have exerted pressure on ministry officials, as in June 1951, he was given a lease extension for another 21 years. There was one change, mind you. It could not be assigned to anyone else and would revert to the crown upon Bate's death. In 1968, Bates fell seriously ill and died in 1969. Soon after, lawyers Benson Lingle and Charles Bell inquired into the possibility of Bell Bates receiving a lease in her own name. But then, not long after that, another inquiry about the property was received from a different Bates widow. A Mrs. Sarah Bates had written to say that she was the executrix of John Bates' estate further investigation and to everyone's surprise. This Mrs. Bates was not the same Mrs. Bates who'd spent so many summers on Apiango with Mr. Bates. Apparently Bates had been leading a double life for decades. Eventually the real Mrs. Bates sold the lease back to the Crown in 1972 and the park staff burned his island home over the winter of 1972-73. What wasn't ever clear was whether or not Bell Bates knew that Sarah Bates existed. I think it's time for a musical interlude. And today I have for you Thunder Spirit. It's a track on Dan Gibson Solitude's Thunder Spirit CD.
The island continues to bear his name, but not so much of a positive light anymore. The site gained notoriety in 1991 when a marauding 140-kilogram predatory bear attacked and killed Carola Frey and Raymond Jakabashkas. As Shaw noted in Lake Apiango Untold Stories, the bear was found and shot, but a subsequent autopsy provided no insight into what was quite unusual behavior for a bear. It had no tag, so therefore was not known to park authorities, and therefore likely not using and therefore likely not used to stealing scraps from Highway 60 campsites. It had also been quite a plentiful season for normal bear food, and there were no physical signs that it was hungry. Officials were stumped. Because something like this had never happened in Algonquin Park before. Then, six years later, in July 1997, another bear incident happened, this time at a campsite at Happy Isle Creek on the North Arm. What's creepy is that this campsite wasn't all that far from where Captain John Dennison had been killed in 1881. A canoe trip of eight boys and two counselors from Camp Erewhon on Teepee Lake were on the second night of a seven-day trip. Counselors Michelle Hayes and Mike Hildebrand had twice already that evening chased a bear away that had wandered into their campsite. At 1 a.m. it returned again, this time ripped open one of the tents where the boys were sleeping, and dragged out 11-year-old Nicholas Atkins. Mike was wearing a headlamp and went after the bear with a can of bear mace and a paddle. The mace was useless, and the bear dropped Nicholas, but not before inflicting a series of 26 deep claw and puncture wounds on his thighs, buttocks, and hips, and retreated up a tree. The group was then able to evacuate to the Apiango Outfitter store, with the help of a nearby camper who had a motorboat. The bear then came down from the tree and laid waste to the campsite, according to a report by Chief Park Naturalist Dan Strickland. This one was tagged and was easily found, and as before, the autopsy of the 142-kilogram male bear revealed nothing abnormal that would explain why this bear would attack a human. In 2011, Nicholas Aitken's mother, wrote a detailed chronicle of the incident in Peak News Magazine, which is a well-worth read. Unfortunately, bear attacks have not been the only kinds of accidents on Lake Opiango. As John Robbins in his 1942 book, The Incomplete Anglers, which I referenced extensively in my book, Canoe Tripping Then and Now, noted, Opiango was, quote, a weather breeder, a mother of storms, a place of sudden changes of air pressure, it was a malignant spirit, cunning, treacherous, the custodian of all the hatred against the encroachments of white men for 300 years. There may well be some truth to those sentiments, as the lake itself has indeed had its share of tragedies. Most have been drownings, which I'll talk about in a moment. But first I wanted to share a really bizarre tale that Rory Mackay uncovered and wrote about in Algonquin Park, a place like no other. Apparently in 1878, a Pembroke newspaper reported that Peter Breshnahan of northern New York State had just been hanged for the murder of his neighbor, Michael Fultier. Apparently, Breshnahan must have had an anger problem, as that wasn't his only murder. He confessed to others, including three in Canada. According to his confession, Breshnahan, who was 18 at the time, 
and 25-year-old Duncan McCrinnan had headed to Lake Opiongo to trade with the local native people. It was late fall, just before freeze-up, and the two spent the winter buying furs. In late March, as they packed up, Breshnahend accused McCrimmon of choosing all of the choicest furs as his own. At Spruill Bay, Breshnahend supposedly shot McCrimmon in the shoulder and shoved him through the thin ice. It's unclear if it's a true story, but interesting to contemplate nonetheless. Another story that Shaw recounted in Lake Opiongo Untold Stories is an accident on Windy Point in May 1959. Four Belleville men had set out from the Opiongo Outfitters in two small motorboats with camping and fishing gear. The next morning, a guide found both boats upturned and assumed that the boats had either collided or one had hit a deadhead and the second had tipped during a rescue attempt. An intensive underwater search did not find the missing men. But on August 1964, the body of Harry Frederick Nichol surfaced. But Murray... Corniel and Ray Donnelly were never found. As illustrated above, drownings on Lake Opiango are unfortunately much more common. As noted by Shaw in Lake Opiango Untold Stories, except on rare, mirror calm days, it's not for the novice canoeist. Fierce winds can blow up with little prior notice, whipping up whitecaps, forcing even the experienced to seek shelter ashore. Meter-high waves can dump the unfortunate canoeist into frigid waters in spring and fall. Even winter has brought the occasional disaster. Ranger Aubrey Dunn noted in February 1938 that at J.R. Booth's camp, number two, a truck and a man had fallen through the ice in the east arm. Even longtime fishing guide and fire ranger Joe Lavalli, when asked his opinion, stated emphatically, She can get goddamn rough. In July 1970, again near Windy Point, shifting winds capsized several canoes belonging to a church group from Pennsylvania. Though one of the leaders was able to right the canoes and began hoisting the boys into it, one boy started to panic and grabbed the leader and both disappeared under the waves, as did a second boy as a result of all of the subsequent confusion. A few days later, divers found the bodies of Charles Schnitter, Donald Ensor, and Timothy Meadows, in about 40 feet of water. In August 1993, a party of Japanese students was paddling in the south arm, about 15 meters off the shore. For some unknown reason, one of the party, 22-year-old Daik Nakashima, upset his canoe. Though he had a life jacket with him, he wasn't wearing it and disappeared under the Lake Opiongo waves. In the summer of 2004, two young men in their 20s Non-swimmers and not wearing life jackets got into a canoe and it flipped not 20 feet away from the Opiongo dock. Luckily, Kit Howe, an employee of Opiongo Outfitters and son of a White Fish Lake leaseholder, kept his head and was able to rescue one of the canoe's occupants. Alas, the second one drowned. More recently, in October 2020, 32... More recently, in October 2020, 32-year-old Jing Lin drowned in heavy winds and swells. As noted in a Facebook post, on Saturday, we headed up to Algonquin Park for a sea kayak camping weekend with four friends on Opiongo Lake. In the midsection of the lake, the wind was blowing at 25 kilometers an hour, gusting to over 40 kilometers an hour, creating two to three foot swells. Our group 
got stretched out, and Glenn and I stayed back with a youth member of our group to ensure her safe passage when I noticed an overturned canoe in the distance in Jones Bay, along with two upright canoes. There didn't seem to be a canoe-over-canoe rescue in progress, so Glenn peeled off to go help. In the time it took me to paddle the youth member to safety at a campsite and return to the scene, Glenn had recognized a catastrophe had occurred and was taking swift action. He had heroically towed two swimmers to shore into the wind and through frigid waters, one woman and one man. He'd activated advanced help by finding nearby campers with a satellite communication device. He had instructed the other members of the group on shore what to do to survive. He searched with the water taxis for the third swimmer, who was unconscious, and pulled him into a motorboat, and later on was eventually pronounced dead at the hospital. Upon my return to the capsized group on shore, there were eight in total. While the search for the third victim was underway, it was evident that they did not have the skills, knowledge, or experience to be out canoeing in those conditions, which would have challenged even advanced paddlers. Communication was a challenge, as there was a large language barrier. The group seemed to be completely oblivious to the danger they were in and had no idea what to do to help themselves or others. They did not know how to swim, but were wearing PFDs. The sad part that this tragedy was entirely preventable. To close the story of Lake Opiongo, I have to juxtaposition two more somewhat symbolic stories, though for two completely different reasons. The first is the story of a possible weekend camping visit in July 1959 by Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip to Lake Opiongo's east arm. Eighteen tents were set up on plywood platforms for the visiting party, and a load of bedding was brought in from Eaton's on an old logging road nearby. A red carpet was even set up to serve as a walkway from the water to the campsite. A few none-too-pleased park rangers were seconded to serve as waiters and were issued white shirts and bow ties to wear for the event. As described in Shaw's Lake Opiongo Untold Stories, logs were salvaged from the old Denison farm to build an ice house that was loaded with imported ice and sawdust. A Captain Dubay brought in a large motorboat to ferry the party to the site and keep guard at the Narrows. Unfortunately, at the last moment, the Queen came down with a stomach upset and plans were changed. However, the party continued. As reported from Whitney in the Toronto Star newspaper the following Monday, a few royal party hangers-on and some RCAF personnel from nearby Trenton had a royal time complete with fishing parties to five nearby lakes where aluminum boats had been cached and ensured that the stored ice was not wasted. The only event dampening the party spirit was when a demonstrating firefighter aircraft dropped its load a little too close. The second story is my own experience on the shores of Lake Opiongo at the Algonquin Outfitters store last summer. As I mentioned at the beginning, I was joining an Indigenous workshop and we were waiting for workshop leader Leslie Anna Moore and head canoe trip guide Alex Savati to arrive. I noticed a commotion around an awning that had been set up between the store and the permit office and wondered what was up. It seems that for the previous two weeks, Master Algonquin Birchbark canoe tripper Chuck Commanda, with partner Joanne Dumoulin, and many other helpers had been building a birch park canoe live and in person. The first week's work took place at the Lake of Two Rivers store, and the second week at the Apiango store. 
With Christine Lukasavich as the lead cultural consultant, the goals as noted on the Algonquin Outfitters website were twofold. First, was to invite, repatriate, and reconnect the Algonquin community in and around the park while bringing awareness to this sacred Algonquin community tradition. Secondly, was to welcome all park visitors to experience and learn about this tradition directly from Chuck while he lived out a long-time dream of building a birch bark canoe in Algonquin Park for the first time. Algonquin Park visitors of all types joined the canoe build, learned more about the Algonquin birch bark canoe, the history of the Algonquin people, the significance of the canoe in our shared history as Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, and lent a hand in crafting the canoe. For those unaware, Kamanda is from the Kitigan Zibi, an Algonquin First Nations territory of the Kitigan Zibi Anishinaabeg that borders southwest of the town of Manawaki, Quebec. Under the guidance of his highly respected grandparents, Mary and William Kamanda, Chuck has spent more than 10 years building canoes in the traditional Algonquin style, as well as teaching canoe building, birch bark basket making, and snowshoe making workshops to Indigenous and non-Indigenous children, youth, and adults. As the Algonquin Outfitters website went on to say, Kamanda's work produces beautiful pieces of art of incredible cultural, functional, and artistic value that embody the use of cultural practices to transmit Indigenous knowledge among peoples and between generations in the spirit of reconciliation and Indigenous community revitalization. I had arrived just as the launching ceremony for the newly completed 14-foot canoe was about to begin. Along with 130 or so others, I had the opportunity to participate first in a smudging ceremony to bless and cleanse the tools, materials, and the setup, and all of the helpers, and then in the launching of the craft and its maiden paddle by Kamanda and Jumalin on Lake Opiango. According to an August 2022 news report by Mike Riley in the Bancroft This Week, there was even a tribute song written by David Maracle, a Mohawk from the Tyandinaga Nation that Susan Oling played on her flute. Her grandmother is of the same lineage as Chuck Kamanda. After the ceremony, anyone who wanted to was invited to take the canoe out for a spin. Watching all of those enthusiastic paddlers brought back to me my own experience paddling a birch bark canoe. I was an 18-year-old CIT at Camp Wapamio and had just successfully passed my final test to attain the title of Master Canoeist. I still have a picture of that day. Every moment is permanently etched in my memory. I can agree that the experience was like floating on a leaf, a leaf that was at the same time solid, sturdy, and infinitely flexible. Named Madawaska by the participating partner, Camp Pathfinder, the canoe is to be on permanent display at the Algonquin Outfitters Apiango Lake store. As explained by Rich Swift, owner of the Algonquin Outfitters, this project represented an amazing community project that helped educate visitors to Algonquin Park not only about the long history of the canoe, but also the rich history of the Algonquin people in this region. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this adventure into the rich and complex history of Great Apiango Lake. For those interested, given that it is now taking me substantial time to research and write new scripts, I haven't been able to keep up a bi-monthly schedule. To help keep us together, I've just set up a chat group on the Discord platform for answering questions, sharing smaller stories, and general keeping in touch. 
Also, don't forget to check out my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, for all kinds of accompanying pictures and the podcast episode notes for links to various websites and articles I've used. If you're interested in purchasing any of my books, they can be found on Amazon.com or at the Friends of Algonquin Park Bookstore. Or, of course, by reaching out to me directly at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. Until next time.